0: Hello and welcome to the National Leprechaun Museum's Talking Stories podcast. This is episode 79. My name is Brendan and I am joined by the splendiferous, incredible Evan. Say hello, Evan.
1: Hi. Hi,
0: Evan. Evan here is our newest storyteller here in the museum and we decided we needed to put him on the podcast as quickly as physically possible. So today we are going to be hearing a story by the incredible Bosco as she tells us of the amazing story of Avertok, the Irish Vampire. So, without any further ado, we're going to leave you in her capable hands.
2: If you ever find yourself in the town of Slataverti Derry, you may come across a patch of land that feels... wrong. The wind stills, the cries of birds are muffled, no vegetation grows. A huge stone lays ahead, covering horrors no mere mortal could ever hope to understand. This is the final resting place of Avertok, and you must count your blessings that he no longer roams the earth. Back when Ireland was still bright, and unexplainable creatures roamed. The people of Slavversy knew to be careful at night. It was rare that a traveller was seen on the roads after sundown, and children were brought in from their games when the first fingers of darkness crept across the hills. For any poor soul wandering the landscape when the moon's sickly light shone down would soon meet Avertuk. A horrible, doughy, grey creature, half the height of any man, claws outstretched and hungry teeth gnashing, was the last sight of many a poor man, woman or child. He possessed an inhuman strength and could take the form of any wild creature in the course of his hunt. The only proof of his destruction came in the morning, when bodies would be found, strewn across the countryside, pale and bloodless, warmed by the weak light of dawn. This went on for months. The townspeople would retire to their homesteads, staring up at the ceiling, listening to the screams of Averduck's victims echoing across the land, and in the morning a few faces would be missing in the crowd. Until one day, a neighbouring chieftain by the name of Cotton was finally convinced. He needed to put an end to Avertok's violent atrocities. One night, Cotton crept to Avertok's den to finally rid Slaverty of this vile creature. Under the cover of darkness, he slowly stepped towards the earth mound he slept beneath, his boots sinking in the thick, peaty muck. As he reached the mound, he heard it, the guttural snores of Avertok resting after his latest rampage slowly Cotton unsheathed his iron sword he raised it above his head the metal glinting against the moonlight and then finally releasing the breath he'd been holding he stabbed the weapon into the mound with a mighty cry first he heard the scream an unholy mind-shattering scream second he felt the hot black sticky blood spewing up at him the horrible ghoul's blood mixed with a dozen victims Finally, he saw his face, mostly hidden by the mound of earth. I dare not describe his features to you, but it sickened Con. so much so that he covered the tiny corpse with his cloak, averting his gaze from those cold, dead eyes. He buried Avertok that night, and he returned home, hiding the shake in his hands. But could a creature like Avertok truly ever be killed? Certainly not through mortal means. Sure enough, Avertok rose from the grave the next night, the killing blow reduced to nothing more than a pale scar. He found a new resting place, a tiny cave far too small for any man to enter, and he slithered in. And with that, the killings continued, even more vicious than before. Khan knew he'd failed when he came across a bloodless corpse strewn across the countryside, and he devised his next plan. Now, Kahn was a man who had great power over the creatures of the earth, and he knew he needed to use those powers to kill this monster for good. He took his cloak, caked with Avertok's dried blood, and he gave it to his wolfhound, who caught the scent instantly. Kahn followed his trusty hound through glens and forests, until finally he reached a cave. Silently, he investigated the opening. Sure enough, he heard Avertok's snores echoing out from deep within, but there was no way he could reach the vile creature. So he waited. He sat by the cave watching for Avertok leaving to satisfy his bloodlust. He sat there for hours, watching the sun slowly creep across the sky, sinking behind the hills. But then his eyelids began to feel heavy. Tried as he might, cotton couldn't stop himself. Slowly, slowly he fell into a deep slumber. Suddenly his dreams were interrupted by the low, guttural growl of his wolfhound. Avertok had gone hunting, and he was returning from his night of chaos. Quickly, Cotton sent his hound into the cave, and he watched closely. After only a few minutes, the tall grass parted, and there he was. Avertok! So tent to toe in blood, his snorts breaking the eerie silence of the night, Cotten readied his sword and watched the horrible beast crawl towards the mouth of the cave. He dragged his body into the rocky maw and Cotten waited. Seconds dragged out while Cotten gripped the hilt of his sword so hard his knuckles turned white. And then came a great, horrible scream, clashing with the dog's angry growl. And avatog leapt from the cave, his arms flailing, the hound latched onto his throat. The undead monster clawed at the dog, his body writhing on the stony ground. Khan took his chance, raising the sword and bringing it down on the creature's skull, crushing his face beyond recognition. And it was done. Once again, Avertok lay dead in front of Same as before, he wrapped the body in his cloak, still crusted from their last interaction, and he buried him deep below the earth, his grave piled high with rocks. But I'm sure I don't need to tell you, even this wasn't enough to stop one of the knave, Marv. The Walking Dead. Avertok, enraged by these attacks, rose from the grave once more, and he set about his killing with twice the cruelty of before cotton finally realized he couldn't do this alone he went to a local druid a wise man trained in the inner workings of the fairy world he was an old man dressed in rags yet his eyes betrayed the ancient wisdom of the hills and the animals he sat quietly listening as cotton weaved his tail and then slowly choosing his words very carefully the druid spoke you seek to kill a no life within us leave your sword of iron it will not serve you take the branch of a yew tree sharpen it to a point and drive it into that vile beast's heart the mockery of life you seek to destroy must be buried upside down with a boulder blocking the grave and a ring of thorns encircling it once this is done you will have slain this creature for good Khan thanked the druid and set about preparing for their final fight. He found a yew branch and spent the rest of the day whittling it into a vicious point. As night fell across the landscape and Avertok was out hunting, Khan began a hunt of his own. He followed the wolfhound through the landscape for hours. The dog tracking Avertok's scent once more. Khan knew he was getting close when he began to pass corpses. Their face frozen in fear and their skin milky white and bloodless. Finally, they arrived. A rocky inlet on Loch Nay, where Abertocken made his home deep below the waves. Eels flicked their tails just underneath the water, twisting and turning. Once more, Cotton used his deep connection with the wild things of Ireland. He leaned down his faces inches from the water, and he begged the eels for their help. After only a few moments, they began to writhe, frantically swimming deep below the surface of the lake where Avertok lay, sleeping, belly fat from a successful night. In a moment, they wrapped themselves over every inch of available flesh, biting and squeezing and tightening. Avertok roared awake, tearing eels away from his skin with his sharp claws, frantically flailing in the water. But for every eel he tore asunder with his vicious grip, two more took their place. Finally, he couldn't take it anymore. He swam to the surface, thrashing and screeching, bubbles and chunks of eel flying everywhere. He broke the surface of the water, throwing himself onto the stony shore, clawing at the eel, still hanging limply off of him. And then Avertok looked up. He saw the vicious point of the yew branch aimed at him, held by the foe who'd killed him twice already. Before he could move a muscle, the stake was buried in his wicked heart. And on the shore of Loch Avertuck finally died. Kong buried Avertok's corpse carefully, as the druid had asked him, and today that grave still lies in Slar Averty. The ground surrounding the site is cursed, and the evils of that creature still bleed into the land around it. The local people sleep easy now, safe from the beast that once roamed. I only hope that the great boulder that holds Avertok beneath the earth is never removed, for if it is the people's safety would be far less sure.
0: Well, that was a spooky tale. I'm definitely terrified. Are you terrified, Evan?
1: I am a little bit terrified. I'll definitely be thinking about that. Utterly quaking in her boots. <laughs>
0: that was an incredible telling of that story done by Bosco. It was very atmospheric.
1: Very yeah. spooky, don't you agree? I see if it's inspired some lovely drawings from you.
0: Oh yes, in my little notebook here that none of you will be able to see because this is an auditory medium. <laughs> <I've> <laughs> That's drawn, how it works. I've <laughs> drawn some creepy little vampire guys. And speaking of creepy little vampire guys, what the hell is Avatar?
1: Yeah, I don't know. He's a weird image, definitely. Um, Being a smaller vampire gives it a little hint of something more specific. I kind of want to know, is there an origin before it's a vampiric origin?
0: Yeah, it's a very odd thing. Vampires, of course, aren't a huge thing in Irish folklore. We have a few of our weird blood sucking things, though often it's more often for them to be eating corpses rather than specifically draining blood. I think, like, most other cultures in the world, when we have our vampires, we've probably got two different categories. We've got the sexy vampires <laughs> and the decidedly unsexy vampires. Which do you think, Averta, is?
1: Uh, decidedly unsexy. Definitely a little pariah, whatever he's done. or That man did not have a good time. Um,
0: possibly part of it might be to do with the fact that in early Ireland kingship was very very tied to physical appearance mm. so when you have stories from the mythological cycle about nuida for example not being able to rule because his arm gets chopped off and a ruler has to be physically perfect so in terms of Avata, who is often described as either having dwarfism or being not otherwise able-bodied in some other way um this would have been seen in ancient Ireland especially as a disqualification from being able to become a king and therefore to the ancient Irish the idea of someone like Avertile becoming king would already make them feel uneasy Um, so then it also stands to reason that all sorts of creepy stuff ends up being associated with him Um, I would say that most of our Proper vampires in folklore also fit into the decidedly unsexy subcategory. You've got creatures like the Puss Muck or the Brown Man. Have you heard of that one? I have not. I'm loving the name. So the Pus Muck or the Pink-Faced Man, who's often also described in the same similar stories as the Brown Man, is this weird figure who, in the stories, basically he goes to this woman in a cottage and tells her that he wants to marry her daughter and that he's got an incredible castle, loads of land, it'll be great. And so she says, oh, of course, right, you can marry my daughter. so." And he brings her daughter and he actually, his castle is actually just a tiny little sod house. His acres of land are horrifying bog. He's just generally not great. He's, so she's forced to sleep in this cold little bed with him. And then every night he goes out and he'll come back really, really cold. And then one day, she follows him and sees that he's going into the graveyard and eating up all of the bodies um so she follows him he realizes that and often at the end of the story he eats her and her mother whole cannibalism is like a little bit more common than vampirism in our folklore another sort of instance of this is in the story of the oatmeal fuca which I heard from Cork Folk Tales. Have you read that one?
1: I have not yet, no.
0: Don't worry at all. Oatmeal Fuca um, is this story where a girl goes into a graveyard and she hears a voice going, open my grave, and for some reason she agrees, and <laughs> which I feel like, just don't do that. Um, and this corpse gets onto her back and she's forced to bring the corpse around until she gets to a house. And because the house doesn't have any water or milk let out for him he's like I want another thing for my oatmeal in this house and he gets her to murder the two sons in the house and then he mixes the blood into the oatmeal but then the blood in the oatmeal is the only thing that can revive the two sons at the very end of the story it's a weird thing we get weird vampires here do you know of any other Irish
1: vampires? I can't say that I'm aware of any Irish vampires. I think even monster stories as a whole is something that I haven't come across an awful lot of yet. Hmm. Um, but it's remarkable how similar that is to just most other general monster stories. Like, it's got all the right components the, with the hunter in... His name again? Cahan. Yeah, that was something as I'd, I'd never come across before either or even thought about was... There are a group or sect of people back in the day who were called upon to hunt or kill creatures like this or mm. was that a profession was it a, an existing thing I was guess. business booming in that regard I guess is what I'm asking
0: <laughs> uh. I, I actually I wonder the same thing so one of the weird things about this story is that there isn't a huge amount of attestation towards it we don't know like how far back any of this goes? Um, Stefan, who was a former member of the staff here in the museum and has an incredible YouTube channel, Hog and Dice, has done. Uh, they've done a big deep dive into the story of Arata and what they uncovered is that it's very very hard to find sources on it, mm. both because it's from Derry in Northern Ireland, so they didn't have as big a folklore commission as us here in the Republic, and also it just means that basically there's this weird gap in knowledge from between 1880 and the 21st century which <laughs> and somewhere along the lines we get the first um, somewhere along there we get the first mentions of Avatar drinking blood because um, in original tales sometimes instead of drinking blood they're just an evil wizard that comes from the back from the dead and continues to be evil but the blood drinking seems to be a new thing and um, It's one of those weird things where we don't know if it was invented to make the story scarier. That happens a little bit with Irish folklore. Um, It could have been people hearing of vampire myths otherwise and then adapting it into this one. But it does make the story objectively creepier. So I'm not going to argue with it that much. Um, Speaking of Weird versions. There's also, have you heard of Averta as opposed to (laughs) Averta?
1: No, but please tell me. Just to make it more
0: confusing, there is another figure, also a wizard, um, called Averta from Tyrone, who is a trickster of the two-a-day or the Formorians, depending on who you ask, who tries to join the Fianna in ancient times. He gets them all to climb on his horse that... For some reason won't go anywhere until he's got like 17 members of the FINA on top of it mm-hmm. and then when avatar gets on the horse rides them all into the other world and fion has to save them with the help of a magical ship and his navigator Faltor. and then avatar is forced to hold on to the horse's tail and get dragged back to ireland and is then rejected from joining the FINA, because they're like you just stole us all into the other world what do you think we're going to do
1: to you um, and that that character has no sort of vampiric qualities or descriptions or no vampiric
0: quality at all. I think he is sometimes described as small and sometimes being a wizard, but he doesn't seem to have any relation to the avatar of Slattery of schlacht avatar, the Grave of Avatar. Um, other interesting things about this story, I would say, include cursed monuments, the idea that there's different parts of. Ireland where you can't really tread because mm. um, if you see nowadays Ireland has a really well-preserved historical and archaeological record because we were terrified to touch anything that was more than a few <laughs> centuries old because it was often said to be claimed by the fairies so Schlacht is another example of one of these ancient grave sites having folklore that surrounds it that actually protects it from being destroyed which I think is pretty cool and um, It's also another weird thing. I'm going on as many tangents as possible, as you can tell. (laughs)
1: That's what podcasts are for.
0: Podcasts are for us to go on unscripted tangents for at least 75 minutes. (laughs) Um, One thing is that the difference, I think, between the undead and the fairies in Irish folklore gets very, very, very blurry. Like
1: Yeah, I was thinking about this at the start of Bosco's story, because as I said, it was the first time I've been considering monsters or anything in the way of a vampire. And then I was thinking, well, that seems awful separate than anything that's going on in the She or to do with fairies. And then, yeah, so are they born out of the other world or are they something completely separate? Did they come as an idea way later? It's a very strange
0: thing because the... The she, the genie the she, the people of the mound, the fairies in Irish folklore, are associated strongly with these ancient burial sites, with dolmens, with fairy hills, with passage graves and cairns that are often described as being entrances into the otherworld. And there's this weird confusion as to whether the otherworld is like an underworld in other cultures, where it's a, an abode of the dead, or whether it's just a different plane. Mm -hmm. and it's one of those weird things where you actually can't really tell if the fairies are the undead or not like you've got even figures like the Banshee and the Banshee is often described as being a fairy woman her name literally means woman of the fairy Mm mounds or otherwise sometimes she's described as being the like unwed daughter of some noble family who dies and then sees all of her family members die over years when she's in like ghost form and that's why she mourns for them whereas otherwise she's a fairy woman who falls in love with one of these ancient families and then cries when her descendants die it's one of those weird things where it's like whatever story you're telling whatever works the best you're like yeah it's the undead or yeah it's a fairy but
1: make it fit yeah
0: make it fit however you can and Arata once again makes it all confusing because he seemingly was a human before everything got started, um, and then d- decidedly becomes something kind of inhuman or unhuman. But even that is something that we see a lot in folklore surrounding things like the puka. Because I think it's the the, the puka of Rosnakrina, I might don't quote me on that. Um, is this like donkey that goes into a noble house? and cleans it up until one person gives him a coat in thanks, and he's like ha you've actually tricked me you see i was a servant in this house long ago who didn't do a liquor work so i've been cursed to do all the work in the house at night in the form of a donkey but now you see you've freed me so i'm free so in that case the puka which is almost always described as a fairy otherwise mm. is the ghost of a dead man who's just weirdly in the shape of a horse or a donkey <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, you could go back and, like, if from a writer's perspective, if this was all fiction you were dealing with, you could go back and justify that. But what would it do? You know, like to say, like, oh, the person who turned him into a puka or what have you is a fairy. But, yeah, does it really add anything? Does it give you anything that makes it distinguished in any way?
0: Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of one of those things where, I mean, that's the joy of folklore nothing has a definite answer
1: romantic gobbledygook Uh. it's what (laughs) we specialise in it's like the force in Star Wars you know
0: I think also going back to vampires in our (laughs) folklore, because who else we've talked about the decidedly unsexy vampires which Mm. of which Avatar is definitely one but that isn't to say there aren't some nicer vampires out. well nicer is a strong word there aren't some nicer to look at vampires out there um, but they even have weirdness associated with them as well. So we've got... The two that really come to mind when you're talking about Irish folklore are the Darragh Du and the Lannan Shee. Now, the Lannan Shee seems to have been entirely made up by Yeats. Um, oh, yeah, unsurprisingly, <laughs> It's what old WB did. He just kind of came around and it's called made Art. up some folklore. <laughs> um, the Lannan Shee is this... Very woman who's said to seduce poets and if they refuse her then she becomes their slave forever but if they agree to become her lover then they become the most inspired poets in the world but they don't have long lives because she generally leeches away all of their like life force or something and She's kind of, like, described as an energy vampire, I guess, in that kind of way. Though some people then go the extra-modern, like, no, she drinks their blood. Um, But unfortunately, all of that seems to be made up by Yeats in the 19th century. Um, So, uh, while it inspired a lot of Irish fantasy novels and things.
1: What was I going to ask you there? I was going to ask you... Yeah, that's hardly, like, where the idea of an energy vampire comes from.
0: Probably not. Um, We... Don't really know. Now, I mean, yeah, I don't know particularly where, like, our modern ideas of energy vampires or whatever come from, though I guess part of it could come from maybe figures like the Lamia in Greek folklore, which was this ancient, once again, kind of vampiric snake-like woman. She ate a lot of babies. Um, She's one of those kind of original Ur-vampires. And I guess it's that idea of, like, a muse, the muses of Greek mythology might have influenced it as well, um, but it's it's just one of those like, strange little things. I don't fully know where he got any of it from. I think, once again, not to just rely on Stephon for everything, but I'm going to rely on Stephon for everything. Um, <laughs> they did a research into it and seemingly um, Yates took a lot of it from a figure in English folklore that I don't know too much about. Hmm. Um, but it's just another way for Yeats to be like, look how poetic and beautiful Ireland is. It's all divinely inspired and incredible, but also I'm going to make most of it up. <laughs> um, um, another one we could compare it to, I think the most similar figure in Irish folklore, possibly to Overtop, would be the Durr. Have you heard of her? I have not. No bother. She is the Red Thirst. Basically, the story goes that a old Gaelic chieftain marries his daughter, who has fallen in love with this like farmhand, peasant kind of guy. Um, He instead marries her off to some ancient chieftain who absolutely hates her, locks her up, and everything. She has a terrible life. She eventually wastes away and dies. But then the next Bealtaine, she rises from her grave and she kills her father. She sucks the blood out of her old husband and then she even goes as far as killing her lover because he didn't say, try make any attempt to save her. Um, that's another one where we see blood coming into it a lot. But I would be interested to kind of dive into it and see where the director actually comes from. because It sounds
1: very contemporary.
0: Yes, exactly. I can
1: see the trailer for the movie coming out next week.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like an idea of a vampire woman that kind of... It feels more like they got it from something like Sheridan Lefadu's Carmilla or something
1: more than they got it from actual Irish folklore. Um, Because you've got a pretty strong revenge plot there as well. Exactly. one from a female perspective, which is... To me, that's a very recent thing. Yes. Now... I would assume it goes back a
0: little bit further than at least the 21st century I'd hope, but <laughs> most of um, most of the sources I found for it online have been online, and they're often from news websites and stuff they're not from folklorists, they're often from like irishcentral.com or like, they're from like some, like wiki or something that someone's put together, so trying to trace those threads back until we find the actual story would be an interesting thing I'd imagine it's pretty contemporary I'd say it doesn't go date back that far mm. maybe maybe we'd be surprised um right well we've talked about vampires both sexy and decidedly unsexy we've talked about Avatar versus Averta and them being nearly the same except for a few key differences we've talked about cursed monuments and I think with all of that We've probably reached the end of this little discussion for now.
1: I've enjoyed myself, yeah. (laughs) I've enjoyed myself
0: too. We hope you've all enjoyed very much listening to us as we ramble on about vampires and all things undead. Thank you all very, very much for listening. My name's Brendan. This is Evan.
1: And we hope to see you in the next one. Bye. Bye.